Welcome to the fourth season of Coming Out and Beyond LGBTQIA Plus Stories. This is Anne-Marie Zanzel, your host, and I am so excited to share some changes to our podcasts that are really great, and I think you'll be as excited as I am about it. First of all, we will be dropping a new podcast every other Friday. This is at the request of our listeners who wanted to hear more. Secondly, my producer, Barb Rowlandson will be joining me as a conversation partner as we discuss things coming out. Barb is a fellow Leighton Lifer and also the mom of a queer kid, and so she has a lot of insight and experience to share with us. And thirdly, we're going to be focusing also on the beyond. Love to hear your coming out stories, but I want to hear the beyond. Sometimes magical things happen when we come out and we have a life that we could have never imagined. Many of us say this is the best thing that we've ever done. So let's get started. Welcome to the show. Tell me your story. I'm very excited to welcome to our show today, Mike Iamelli. He thought he was straight his entire life. It sounds familiar, right? But a life-changing illness forced him to challenge that notion on head-on when he fell in love with his male caretaker. And the two of them went on a year-long journey to explore sexuality and fluidity to figure out if the relationship could work. When he chose to blog about his relationship, he had no idea that 100,000 people would share the post overnight, and he'd wake up to millions of people talking about his sex life. Or that story would be made into an off-Broadway musical today. For most of the past decade, Mike has helped thousands of people to explore their own sexuality, identity, and purpose by mapping their experiences and an understanding who they are inside and outside of labels. Mike, I am so delighted to welcome you to this show. Oh, thank you. I'm so honored to be here. And Mike, I want you to know you are the first man we have ever had on this podcast. You are not, again, a trailblazer. <laughs> so I hope we have the first of many, but I, you are a later in life person and I know you understand this experience. So I feel like the universe aligned and brought you on this podcast today. So, oh, thank you. Right? I'm now doubly honored. Yeah. So tell me your story. <laughs> Ooh, okay, diving right in. Um, yeah, you know, I think um, I was a person who was very ambitious. I felt like I wanted to make a mark on the world. And probably looking back, there was some self-worth things behind that, right? But I, by the time I was 22, I started a public relations agency. Um, and I worked on healthcare reform. I worked with some billionaires, for better or worse. I did like lots of, you know, great work. And um, I was living this kind of fast-paced lifestyle. I was dating women. And I woke up one day a few years into this, and I started vomiting blood. Oh. And you can imagine that was really scary. You know, I had never um, vomited blood before. How old, How old was I? I was 25. Oh, my God, you're a baby. I was a baby. And I was vomiting blood daily for two months straight. And so it was really scary for me. You know, I... Um, one day I went into work and I was still trying to go to work, even though I was so sick. And I realized I had to go to the bathroom 
And so I ran to the bathroom and I didn't make it in time. And I had an accident at work. I couldn't control my bowels. And it was, as you can imagine, incredibly devastating. It was embarrassing. And to make matters worse, I didn't have my cell phone on me. So I had no way to like have anyone help me. And so I remember I, you know, I think I, this is so gross to say, threw my underwear in the sink, brushed off best I could. And I looked in the mirror and I was shaking. I was so scared. And I remember just saying to myself, this is happening. And the sooner that you can accept that, the sooner you can do something about it. But like, this is real. Did you go to the doctor through all of this? Oh, yes, yes, oh. yes. I've had many diagnoses, many, yes. Okay. So okay. I, we can talk about all that. But you know, in this moment, it was kind of a wake-up call for me because I was kind of like, this is happening. And so I ran out, grabbed my cell phone, ran back. I texted you know, the office manager to put an out-of-order sign up. I got someone to buy me pants and you know, called a cab and I snuck out of there. But that was really the start of a journey. You know, you asked if I had been to the doctor. I had been hospitalized already and I was in the emergency room um, based on, you know, people always want to know what I was diagnosed with. Based on um, my amylase and protease levels, I was diagnosed with severe pancreatitis acutely, but I was also diagnosed, God, with, um, I was gluten-free. I had uh, ulcerative colitis. I had some infections in organs. It was kind of something autoimmune is going on here. And so while that was all happening, I just got obsessed with healing myself. Like I thought I was going to die. I mean, there was Mm -hmm. nothing I could do. I was still vomiting blood. I couldn't control my bowels. I was getting weaker by the day. And so I just got on this, you know, campaign of every day, reflexology, Reiki, acupuncture, herbalism, like you name it, things I'd never tried before. I was doing anything in my power. And I was also trying all of these radical therapies like, um, I wrote handwritten letters to every member of my family saying everything I've never said out loud. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought like, if I'm going to die, I've just got to do anything. I've got to let all come up because I can't stuff things down if blood's coming up. And so that was just to give you some context of the mindset I was in at the time. And I, um, I had two roommates at the time. One of them was my older sister's friend who had moved to the city. And the other one was a guy I knew from college. It was just kind of a ragtag team. People need to live together. Mm Um, and so my older sister's friend, she started dating someone and would spend half the week at his place. And my, the other roommate who was someone I knew, we went super close, but I knew him from college. He, um, was a pharmacy resident. And so he knew the medical system well, and I was getting to a point where I couldn't drive myself. And just by, you know, necessity, he became my de facto caretaker. Mm -hmm. And so he would bring me to appointments or call ahead, get medication, um, eventually he would clean out my blood when I was vomiting blood. He would, you know, I couldn't get off the couch. I was in such severe pain. He would cook me dinner. And this, you know, I got to a point where I had to work completely from home. I really couldn't leave the house. I couldn't even, you know, be safe to not have an accident if I didn't leave the house or vomit. And so we spent a lot of time together. And I found over time he was staying in on weekends to spend time with me. And probably two or three months into this process, I realized I was developing feelings for him. And this was unique for me at the time, because up until that time, you know, I had never been with a man, never consciously been interested in a man. I had only dated women. And, you know, I had lots of gay friends. It wasn't like something that I felt like I had an aversion to. It just felt like this hadn't come up. And so I am sitting here and, you know, to give you, get you into my mindset, 
there was a part of me that was like, am I just scared I'm going to die? And this is like a human within proximity. Like, I don't know how to feel about this. But I also know that if I'm writing handwritten letters to everyone in my life, I can't lie about this. Like, I do I want to be a type of person who dies without courage? And that's not who I want to be. And so I just decided I'm going to tell him. And I didn't know if he was going to want to punch me, if he was going to want to kick me out of the house, if he was like, you know, like it was really scary. But I also felt like I, you know, I think I'm really blessed that I was at this moment because maybe if it were a different time in my life, I would have thought, just suppress this, these feelings will pass. I don't know. Oh, I have a million questions. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. uh, Finish your story. (laughs) Okay. So yes, there's a lot here. So I, you know, I just decided one day I was going to say something. And I just said to him, you know, Garrett, that's his name. Um, I don't know how to talk about this because it doesn't feel sexual. It doesn't even feel romantic necessarily, but it feels more like a, than a friendship. And I feel something here and I think you do too. And I, I'm just putting it out there. Like, I just want to tell you. And he, you know, Garrett is probably one of the most thoughtful people I've ever met. And so he said, okay, you know, it's a lot. He's like, but let me just process and sit with this. And so we did something that sounds funny in retrospect. We emailed a lot. And I know that's like weird. We were living together. But I think email, you know, it gives you the opportunity to collect your thoughts and not have someone's oh, yeah, immediate absolutely. reaction in front of you. Yeah. you it, and it's safer. When it's you are safe. Being, exactly. And when you like a lot of my clients tell their parents via email. Yes. Okay. Because it gives them an opportunity to collect their thoughts because you know the dynamics with family relationships sure. and stuff like that. And so it's it's safe. So I can it's not weird yeah. to me at all. I completely get it. Yeah. And you don't want to censor yourself and you know you might in front of a physical person. And so for like two or three weeks, we were emailing back and forth and kind of talking, you know, in person sometimes. And we decided to explore a relationship. And this was we're going to ask something. I'm curious who emailed first. I'm just like this. So he emailed me first in response to, you know, it like a few yeah, days later, it was just like incredibly thoughtful. long email. Yes. Super yes. thoughtful. Yeah. Yes. Was he, he, did he identify as queer at the time? He didn't No, He had just been about six months out of a six and a half year relationship with a woman. So he had been a long-term relationship with a woman and that was his only like really serious relationship in life. And was he 26, 25 too? Yeah. yeah around that age. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's oh, six yeah. Months so he started dating her when he was a teenager yeah exactly yeah. And so um we uh basically we decided to explore something we were you know still um dating women but we were exploring something together for the course of a year and a half and so it was kind of I was still sick and so part of the thinking was what if I get better and this is just a fluke you know like we didn't want that to be part of it and he is a very private person, more so than I am, if you can't tell already. And so it was hard for me because he wanted to keep this secretive. And I didn't, you know, I'm not used to lying to my family about things. Now, here I am exploring my first, you know, really serious relationship with a man. And I felt like it was just hard for me. And so anyway, while we're exploring this relationship together, We also, I realized I needed to leave my job because if I'm like vomiting blood, probably something wrong there, I shouldn't be in that job. And so I did what I never recommend anyone listening do, which is (laughs) I gave a year's notice at work. 
Oh, that's and it was crazy. It's crazy. Well, I was the owner of this company, right? Like I felt like I have to you know, make sure they're in a good place. I know. Good I gave four months. I gave four months notice to my hospice job. Stupid. I mean, like once I know notice, it's I hell. Yeah. It is, and, and they're pushing you out and it's super awkward, but you can't tell clients and yeah, you know, whatever. But what, so during that year, I just figured I'm going to figure something out with my life. I have a year to figure out what I'm going to do next. And so I was going to like herbal school and, you know, taking spiritual classes. I went to nutrition school. I will tell you, navigating your first same-sex relationship while working full-time and going to three different schools is not an ideal scenario. It was really, really difficult. The most difficult year of my life. But it ended. And so that December, it just so happened that we decided to tell our families, you know, we moved into a place, just two of us, and we gave it like three or four months to see if it would work. And it was. And so we would tell our families about the same time I was leaving my job. And so we did tell our families and close friends. Not everybody was super supportive right away. Everyone got there. We're not going to name names today, but everyone's there. Um, and so we- your family or his family? That was less supportive. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I'll get myself in trouble. No, they won't listen to us. His family more so. Yeah. He's from rural- Yes, he's from rural Pennsylvania and I'm from yep. Massachusetts. So there's well, also rural Pens- yeah, super Republican rural Pennsylvania yes, exactly. like that. and Massachusetts, depending on where you're from, it's typically pretty liberal up there. Exactly. I'm so, I- oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 So yeah. yeah, I mean, he, his family's actually technically liberal as far as voting, but regardless, you know, um, yeah. it's different world there. And so, um, I, so I started doing this work. I was an herbalist and I didn't love the work I was doing. And so I decided, well, you know, I am a writer. I've always been a writer for public relations. I've been successful at a young age. Maybe that's valuable to people to say it wasn't what it was cracked up to be. I can start a blog about this. And I wasn't talking about my relationship yet publicly, but I started this blog and it actually got decently popular. So three months after I started this blog, um, a bu- book publisher reached out to me and said, can I give you a book deal? I was like, is this how it happens? Sure. Yeah. If you're going to no, pay me. <laughs> absolutely. It I doesn't know. happen like that. Right. So I was like, I, I can't like, you know, um, deny this. Okay. I guess so. So you know, I got a little advanced. It wasn't huge, but I wrote this book and my editor was queer herself. And she said, I think that your love story is a huge part of this book. I think it needs to find its way into this book. And so she convinced me and I put it into the book. And at this point, you know, all of my close friends knew, my family knew. And I turned to that manuscript and I think, oh shit. Like I have to tell the wider networks of my life. You know, people in my life are going to be really upset if they find out on the shelves of Barnes and Noble. And so I need to get the message out there. But I think everybody listening is really going to resonate with this part of it. Um, It sounded exhausting. It sounded exhausting to seek out all of these people and tell them one by one and deal with their emotional reactions. And it was going to be a surprise because I had only dated women up until this point. And I just didn't want to go through that, quite frankly. And I thought, you know what? I've got this blog. It's a great vehicle. I can just like write this on there. You know, people in my life read it. I'll post it to like my Facebook page, whatever. And it will, you know... They can process and then come back to me when they're processed. That seems so much less exhausting. And so, you know, as you said earlier in my bio, I wrote this blog post and I had been writing for some national publications. Long story short, one of these publications picked up that blog post. And when I woke up the next morning, 100,000 people had shared it. Oh my and God. yes, it was the single most overwhelming moment of my life. 
Um, Actually, I, I understand that because my child wrote a blog post that a uh, hundred thousand people shared. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. So I understand what it means to go viral. I don't want to talk about that in this, but they, sure. they're, they're, um, they're non-binary. They wrote a yeah. post when they were like uh, a, a, a junior in college and it went viral. So I understand what it's like to wake up the next day and have had a hundred thousand people share your blog, blog post. Well, that is uncanny that, you know, mm-hmm. your child has had that experience, but yeah, I so you know I had missed calls. I'm not kidding you. From NPR, from mm-hmm. Huffington Post, from Yahoo News, wanting to talk to me about this, and then I had emails from every angle you can imagine. I mean, I had people saying you should speak at Pride parades, and I was like, I don't feel qualified for that. On the one end, and then there were people, you know, I got lots of homophobic messages. I got lots of you know people saying I'm lying every which way. Either I'm you know, lying in the past, lying now, whatever. It was just kind of an overwhelm of everything. And I got my, my therapist got a phone call. I'll say that to start, but I did a few interviews and then I just decided I'm done with this. Like, I'm just not, like, it's too overwhelming. And, you know, people were, um, I was not a social media person to begin with. So I, I only had an Instagram because I signed up for like a scavenger hunt where, um, it was like you had to like show a sad selfie if you um you know didn't get the right clue. And so all, all my Instagram was because I got extra points for it, was like 12 sad selfies. And people, you know, thousands of people are coming there, like, where are the sexy photos of you and your boyfriend? Like, why are you sad all the time? And it was so bizarre to me. And then people were like trying to get he's not really on social media, hack into his things and find oh, him. God. And it got really weird. There was some stalking situations, and I just decided. I'm shutting all of this down. And um, that was the story for a while. And then about six or eight months after all this happened, I got an email from these two, I'm going to say kids. And for whatever reason, in my mind, they seem like kids. They were grad students. And they said, we want to write about this. Do we have your permission to interview you and make like a musical about this? And I guess I thought they were doing this as like a grad school project. And I was like, I mean, you know, you seem earnest, you seem sweet, you know, like, sure. And I guess they had independently read the article and then both thought it would make a good musical. And so they had kind of come together, which is strange. And so they came to Boston and they interviewed both of us um, separately for an hour each. And they had recordings of that. And that was it. And I thought, okay, we'll never hear from them again. Cool. And we didn't. For seven years. And so, (laughs) yes, I had completely forgotten about this. I had no idea what I said in those interviews. And my life had changed considerably where, honestly, people ask me questions like, what were some things like? I don't remember entirely. You know, it was now 11 years ago. Like, I don't remember all of these things. And so- I understand, yeah. Things you (laughs) felt in the beginning. It must have been, did did you have an opportunity to listen back? So I have, they have told me that I could and they never sent them. So I actually, now you're reminding me, I probably can ask them. I have not listened. Just to see where you were at that time. I know. Well, they said, I have changed, but Garrett has changed tremendously. Like they said, I guess he was a lot more reserved at the time. And so- Anyway, in uh, about 2020, we got an email that, you know, during the height of COVID, they were able to have more time to spend on this. And they finished the script and they were workshopping it with a college in Staten Island, Wagner College. 
And at the time, I kind of still thought like this is a school project, right? Like they're, you know, working with Wagner. It's kind of fun. They work with the students because they have, you know, access to actors and resources. Yeah, actually, Wagner is like one of the number one schools for musical theater students. I know. I see. I The same child got into that school. Oh, my gosh. There were some (laughs) parallels. That is so funny. But I, oh, that's really interesting because they're very connected to Wagner. So we'll have to talk after. But I, um, you know. I, to be honest with you, I'm not, I hate saying this. I know, I know people are going to hate me here. I'm not really a musical theater person. I've never really been. I know, I know it makes me so unlikable. I know, but no, I, so I was kind of, it was like a very surreal thing to, and I knew nothing about musical theater. So they eventually, after the end of that first semester, um, sent us a taped recording. And fortunately, you know, it was like two hours long. So we broke it up over two nights. And I think that was a good thing for us. And I'm, I'm glad that we didn't go to the theater to see it because um, we had emotions about this, as you can imagine. And they imagine. altered details. You know, they, even though there was a six month gap between when I started something with Garrett and his ex-girlfriend, they made an overlap. And so yeah. Garrett was upset, you know, because it heightens the drama, right? right. And Garrett was yeah. upset that he had was cheating in this story. And I was kind of like an alcoholic in this story. And so there were all these details. And I had to take a step back and say, you know what? This isn't us. It's just inspired by Fire. us. Yeah. And we're making what is a very specific personal story into something universal that other people can attach to and maybe relate through. And so um, we watched the second half and we were much, you know, kind of better about it. And then in June, uh, so I got an email a few months later that in June 2022, um, they were premiering at the New York Theater Festival. And so we got to see the show um, in person and it was super weird because like, you know, um, obviously everyone's still in masks. And so at first people I don't think knew who I recognized me. And then at some moment, someone turned around and was like, oh, it's them. And I was like, what? I feel like really. How they did had they seen, recognize uh, you? I guess they had seen, I don't know if the writers had pictures of us or what it was, but like everyone who was working on it knew who we were at this point. Wow. And so I felt very, you know, it was a weird. It's exposing. Yeah, it's very vulnerable. Yes. I can and imagine. The actors, like I, they had done little write-ups about them, you know, prior to us going there to promote it. And one of the, the actors who played me said, my biggest fear I'm gonna is I'm gonna disappoint Mike. And I was like, oh, that is so sweet. And I was like, and I don't want him to see me in the audience because I think that he will be really nervous if he sees me. And I'm not kidding. I already said I'm not a musical theater person. And so going into it, Garrett and I said, by the way, we are married today. We've been together 11 years, married for a five and a half. Um, Garrett said, uh, I said to him, we have to like this. Even if it sucks publicly, we have to support this thing, right? And I'm not a musical person, so I don't think I'm going to like it. And we went in and I was floored. Like it was, I'm getting goosebumps even saying it. It was shocking in a way I didn't expect. And I just want to say one thing about it before. I know I'm saying a lot here, but just one thing is, um, so there was a moment in the musical where Mike and Garrett, the characters are intimate for the first time. And like Mike is, you know, uh, in his boxers and Garrett gets out of the bed and he's singing into this sweat, the sweatshirt. And the sweatshirt's significant because the writers told me that they wanted to play with the idea that same-sex couples can share clothing and mm-hmm. that that's a level of intimacy. And so when Mike was vomiting blood, Garrett gives him this sweatshirt because he's shivering and he's cold. And so the sweatshirt kind of becomes a symbol throughout the musical. And so Garrett has the sweatshirt in his hands and he's singing into it what is arguably the most beautiful song of the whole musical. 
And then and he's kind of re- reckoning with his own identity. And then Garrett and Mike wakes up and they start fighting because having sex kind of brought up all this stuff. Oh, yeah. And Garrett screams, I'm not effing gay. And I, that was a moment that it was just silence in the theater. And I looked around me and I saw everybody's bodies tense up. And I thought, oh my God, because most queer media is about externalized homophobia. And we need to keep talking about that. That's very, very important. This was the first piece I've seen this poignantly about internalized homophobia. And everybody in this theater, regardless of their lived experience, their gender, their sexuality, is feeling that right now. And I thought, shit, this can change a lot of things. And like, I imagine everyone here who has queer kids, who has queer family, like, they're feeling something that they've never felt this poignantly. And it just, what, the moment I saw that, I said, okay, I'm in. I want to help you guys. Like, I, because this can actually save lives. Wow. <laughs> Um, uh, you've got me speechless. Um, I really deeply understand that. And, um, internalized homophobia is really real in our community. And I love the thing I wear my wife's clothes all the time. She's bigger than me. She can't wear mine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I deeply understand that as you, as we struggle with, yeah. oh, am I gay or not? And yeah. I always, you know, I have found that our later in life community tends to be incredible allies. You you described that actually when you were talking about your 20s and the only person that can't be gay is me. And that's how I've always defined internalized yeah. homophobia. Yeah. Um, so the, your story, Mike, is amazing truly amazing and I am a musical theater nut so I'm now <laughs> going to have to go to New York in August to see this play <laughs> um so I sort of lost it there for a second I don't know what happened I like had these tears just came up but I think it's really important what it, this musical is because so many people really, really, you know, there's this trope out there that everybody figures this out when they're 15 and, mm-hmm. and they don't, I, I think, especially in the South, um, yeah. I'm living in the South now from the North, but I'm living in the South, especially women. And, and as we yeah. were talking before we got on air, the experiences between men and women are often very different. Um, women are often married and have children and then they come out and do all that stuff. And, um, but the reality is so many of us figure this out post-teenage years, you know? I think one of the things that is so beautiful in the queer community is the commonalities and the diversity. And, you know, there's no one right way to be queer, right? We know that. Even though the conditioning comes from everywhere, that tells us how we're supposed to be. And I think it's the diversity of every step of the queer experience, including the coming out process, that some people are three years old and know, five years old and know, and that's great. And that's wonderful. And I love what you brought in, that women have a different experience, a different conditioning and different everything. And so that may alter the experience. That may, may be very different. But one thing I have, and what I love about my work now is because of my story and my experience, I get to work with lots of people who wouldn't consider themselves queer originally. Like maybe they're like, I am bisexual, but I, you know, am more attracted to women. But now I feel like there's a home for me because that, you know, male attraction I still have, or I 
you know, uh, I'm sexually fluid or I've only been with one. I mean, I've only been with one man my whole life. I've been with one man and I'm valid as queer, you know? And I think that idea of queer validity and so often, at least historically, our story, I think, has also been that queer validity has been based around, you know, oppression and trauma and shame. And I think, well, we're, like, I want us to celebrate every part of ourselves. I want us to like also, that's queerness and that is valid. And there's no rules for us. And I think that, I mean, I truly believe that queerness is healing the world. And the reason I believe that is because queerness is the notion, the radical notion that who you are is right. That everything you feel, everything you know about yourself is right, despite what society tells you. Even if it tells you that that's why, like, you know, like you're choosing yourself. You're choosing your inner knowing of yourself and the world around you and your inner desires. And that's not just liberation for queer people. That's liberation for everybody. Liberation for everyone, yeah. And yeah. it's, you know, it may not be for everyone. We're not doing, we're doing it for ourselves, but it's such courage and bravery. And I just think, I'm so glad you said that because I have been invalidated. People say I'm not queer enough or whatever. And I don't accept that. And I don't accept anyone's. And it does not matter if you come out at 80 years old it is the most courageous thing in the world. And you are valid. Your entire life is valid. Absolutely. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. My audience knows, but my wife is the only woman I've ever slept with. So, and she's, she's an old lesbian. She's mm-hmm. she slept with more people than that. Um, she's yeah. a lesbian of her generation. She came out yeah. in 1985. So like yeah. a lot of lesbians of her generation, she's had a lot of partners, um, about four. I mean, not a lot, but sure. you know, like yeah. four or five. Um, we're the same age. She's 60, I'm 59. Yeah. Um, and like a lot of, you know, there's a because our community faces such oppression and such trauma, yeah. and um, you know, that that affects our relationships. And because they did not have the benefit of marriage until 2015, Mm -hmm. up in Massachusetts, yes, you did. Up in Connecticut, yes, you did. But not anywhere else. So when you don't have the benefit of marriage, a lot of times people will break up a lot easier. People who are married and have very commingled lives, children, finances. So people that are, you know, straight couples will work on things while sometimes queer couples up to this point will have gone different directions because they don't have the safety and security Mm -hmm. of marriage. And that's why marriage equality is so incredibly important for us just for like social security. I mean, yes. I'm to that age. So, you know, I'm almost that that's why those things are important. And yes. Or health insurance. I'm an entrepreneur. It is very nice to be able to be on my husband's health insurance. Yeah. Well, both my, my, my wife and I work for ourselves, so we have to buy help, but at least mm. that's available to us now. <laughs> so I have a, um, a couple of questions for you. Um, yeah. first of all, one, are you done with your story? <laughs> uh, yes, I am done with my story. Thank you. Your story is is like it takes my breath away, and the the angle with the being in a musical and and then seeing this you know the, the sweatshirt and all that stuff like that. I just think it's unbelievably beautiful, and I will be going to see it in August mm-hmm. because I'm going to try to get your the co writers on this show because I want to talk to them about yeah. it. Yeah, um, they would love to. Yeah, because I'm like, and I. I just am so like excited to see this. 
So we have a saying, you know, you were, you were sort of cute when you were talking about when you were, you know, you and Garrett just found each other and you like kept going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So there's a saying in our lesbian, late in life lesbian community is straight girls don't lay awake at night wondering if they're gay. Mm. <laughs> so that's pretty of a, like that experience of going, you know, going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. You talk about it a little bit more for men. Yeah, um, well, I can talk about it for myself specifically. Okay. Well, you work um, yeah. with, but don't you I do? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. do, I do. So I, I can talk about both if that's helpful. Okay, uh, that'd my be own great. Experience in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. For me, you know, I think that it was it was trying to contextualize feelings that didn't make sense. So I didn't have a way to intellectualize. And so it was kind of like, I feel something. It doesn't feel exactly like I feel when I'm with women. So I'm confused. And does that mean it's less valid? And I think there was a lot of that feeling for me. There was a lot of, um, you know, when we were starting to explore sexuality, is that some, is that about, you know, pure sex? Is that emotional too? Like, is there, so I think it was kind of navigating and putting all these pieces together. Like what, and also there's the part of me that was like, if I am not with women anymore, will I still be okay and satisfied with that? And so it was just kind of navigating these different pieces and Mm -hmm. reckoning with different um, identities or parts of myself. And, you know, so much of my work now is really about helping people to map their lives and figure out how they sense life or what they're most sensitive to. So for me, I always tell people I am sensitive to, I am aligned, zany, free, unmistakable, successful, and vulnerable. And you'll probably see bits and pieces of that, my personality coming out, the vulnerable and the zaniness and the unmistakable. And that, um, I'm really interested in that because labels can often change and may change. Absolutely. Those expressions of us are, it's kind of like we're pouring water from one cup into the next, right? The water is the essence, the cups are the containers. And so I can tell you that I have never felt this safe to be vulnerable that I was with Garrett and that I still am. I have never felt like I literally could not make a mistake, like nothing I could do. Even today, I feel like I will not murder somebody, but I feel like I couldn't. He'd be like, well, I understand why you did that. Like he is just so, and again, I said he was understanding one of well, his sensitivities. Also said he's deeply thoughtful too. Deeply thoughtful, understanding one of his sensitivities, understanding. So he's always trying to understand other people's perspectives. And so that, it makes sense to me. And that I'm always, so, so much of my work has been about trying to help people understand and make sense of themselves, even when growth implies um, death of old containers or the old identities that mm-hmm. we you know, don't have to be beholden to how we've defined ourselves. One thing I wrote in that article, and one reason, you know, sometimes people ask me why it resonated so much, and I obviously don't know for sure, but one thing that I think may have resonated with people is I said something like, and I hate that I'm going to butcher my own words because I don't remember exactly. But it was like, um, you know, we have this myth of identity that we are beholden to all of our past decisions. And that's not true. Who we are is who we choose to be in this moment and how we are expressing ourselves and what feels right and true for us right now. And I and, you know, essentially, we have one decision to make in every moment. Will this move me toward or away from love? And so that's what Ultimately, me speaking up to Garrett and me choosing this and anybody choosing to come out is moving toward love, self-love, love of others, love of life. Yes. Well, yeah. And it's love of, you know, like I always so, you know, I don't know. I'm a a minister, an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. And um, one of the things I always say is that the greatest commandment was love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. Yeah. 
But what people don't realize is that loving ourselves is, you know, we do love God. People are really good at loving God and loving their neighbor, but they really struggle to love themselves. And I still struggled with it. Even, I mean, I have my good days and I have my good days. Of course, we're human. Yeah, something happens in my life that makes me feel not so great. You know, I really struggle with with sometimes loving myself. It is it is yeah. not like oh, I love myself and boom, and that's yeah. It's it. not one and done, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not like coming out, coming out, especially for women, especially for sh- seemingly straight passing women. You're coming out all the time. I mean, that's I right. literally, it, my wife is masculine of center, so when I'm with her people know we're a lesbian couple. Sure. But when I go out by myself, I come out all the time every time yes. I mention my wife. And mm-hmm. I know you do that as well. Yes. We, we come out continuously. So, um, but I've lost my train of thought where I was going with that. But, you know, um, it is definitely a journey. So, you know, one of the things I've said and, and you know, m- my own coming out like for the final time, well, for the, be- it was a 10 year process. It was a super mm-hmm. long process for me because I was married and had children and all that stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But one of the things is that I read this article in Oprah Winfrey magazine, which talked about the fluidity of, of women's sexuality. And it, and it was an article that. Um, where women, um, you know, were with women after being married to men and stuff like that, which even in 2006 was pretty, still pretty mm-hmm. radical, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I realized that, oh, although I had been on this straight path, I didn't have to stay on it forever. And it was the first time that I started to let these thoughts in because I always joke about my own, it's sort of a sardonic kind of joke. But I kept my queerness on the box and a shelf in my closet. And um, when I started to unpack it, um, it took a really long time. But really what it was is giving myself permission, self-love to get off the path and make some very difficult choices about leaving in an okay marriage to a man that I loved, but it was a very different love, like the way you describe being with women versus being with Garrett. It was a very different love. We, our love was based on our mutual love for our children. We both are good parents. We both love our kids a lot. Um, But then I met my wife and that love is totally different. Like I feel, I feel at home now. Mm. Like for me, when I first like was with her and, you know, it was a couple, and, you know, ironically, we, we communicated by uh, messaging each other mm-hmm. for um, like f- for three months before we ever talked to each other, yeah. you know, and then we talked on the phone. We never, we never FaceTimed. I don't know why it's a long distance relationship. Like every lesbian has. Um, and we FaceTime, we never FaceTime, but we talked on the phone for like six weeks before we actually ever met each, like met each other in person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and that's, I think the commonality is that we both have been with, you know, both genders and um, what I felt with my wife was so incredibly different than what I felt with my husband. Not, not that anyone's better. Well, actually true. Like, I always feel like, I feel like I'm home with my wife. And one of the things that I always said is what was really confusing for me in the beginning, I had a home, 
I was, I, you know, I had a home, I had children and stuff like that. But when I was with her, I, it felt like home. And, you know, my wife, my, my husband, ex-husband and I had already split up by the time I met my wife. And so I couldn't wrap my mind around in the beginning, why this virtual strain, you know, I mean, we had talked and all, but she was still a stranger. Yeah. Like why this stranger felt like home. And I think it was, you know, a couple of things. I think it was because it was her. And, but I also think that it was for the first time in my life, I was coming home to myself, you know? And so those relationships feel incredibly, um, life-giving and life-affirming. Both you and I, we were very lucky. We met somebody right out of the gate. I know both of us have had friends that have dated gazillion people and stuff like that. But being able to connect with somebody is really, I feel like, sometimes I feel like the reason why I met my wife so quickly, and I don't know if you feel this way, is that I had other work to do. And so God, uh, so the universe, you know, the, 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 whatever you call it, the source, Mm -hmm. God um, was like, honey, you've got other work, other stuff to do. You don't need to spend six years worrying about your life. (laughs) So, and, and I feel like that happened with you as well. Yeah. Fell in love and the universe said, Mike, you got other work to do, you know? I feel, And I feel like the love has been a huge activation for me to do the other work. You know, yeah. we're sitting here today talking because of it, the musical because of it, so much of my work because of it. And it's just, I feel the same way as you. I mean, that sense of home, it, I had never felt that shockingly safe. You know, I, I've written this before, but I always say my heart never sped up with Garrett. I don't remember my heart racing. What I remember is being in the middle of a panic attack and him holding me closer than I've ever been held before so tightly until my heart slowed down to the speed of his. That's mm-hmm. what I remember about our early days. And also too, much like the later in life community that are women, you had a catalyst moment you know, with your disease and that a lot of the people figure out, a lot of us figure out we're not quite straight or we're queer. Yeah. When something like that happens, um, yeah. I had a I had a client once who had a brain tumor that was supposed to be inoperable and she was going to die. And right after that, they she didn't, and um, yeah. she realized that she wasn't straight. And yes. so, for us, it was our queerness. It sounds like for some of the clients you work with, it's other things. But I think it's never too late to embrace your authenticity. You know, I want to thank you today for being on the show. And I want to know if you've had a uh, coming out song. So it's so funny you asked that. And I I apologize. I had only seen that shortly before the uh, interview. And I, you know, I picked this, my wedding song, which is Life by the Avid Brothers, because it's a song that we walk down the aisle to. And the reason we chose it is because the song's about life, all of life. You know, there's a line in it that's about, you know, choosing the hell and paradise here on earth because it's everything. You know, when we got married, we made it clear, I want all of it. If we end up having kids, I want, you know, 4 a.m. screaming babies. I want fights about money. I want a real life with you that makes me grow. And I think that to me is everything about what coming out has been to me. It's all of it. It's the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, the just authenticity of life. Mm -hmm. 
Have you had a book or a movie that you've read or seen that you really like changed your perspective? Yeah, um, it's probably a little stereotypical, but Louise Hayes, You Can Heal Your Life. Um, I, my sister gave me that six months before I got sick. And so Mm -hmm. I read that book and I started this project where I spent those six months each month focusing on a different aspect of my life. So one was friendship, one was like health, one was self-esteem. And at the end of those six months, I got sick. And I truly believe that there was some strange activation where I was just ready for my life. You know, I was kind of on a path that wasn't mine and something just corrected me. And um, I'm really great. I mean, in the moment, wasn't grateful for it, but in retrospect, grateful for that. Well, yeah, absolutely. And you already gave your your uh, adjectives in the middle of this podcast, but how do you describe your life today? Yes. Well, hopefully it's always accurate. I'm aligned and zany and free and unmistakable and successful and vulnerable. And I think my definition of those words has changed greatly over the last decade or so and will continue to. And, you know, sometimes people ask me successful, what does that mean to you today? And I've been, you know, honored that I got to go to this musical. I've written a book and had a book launch party. And I always say, honestly, the most successful I ever feel is a Sunday afternoon watching TV on my couch with Garrett and my two dogs. Mm, That's beautiful. Well, Mike Amali, uh, wait a minute. How do I say it? Mike I am Ellie. <laughs> I, I am Ellie. I knew that. I said it right the first time. Yeah. Mike Ellie, oh my gosh. <laughs> this has been an amazing interview. I have enjoyed it thoroughly. I have heard my story and your story time and time again. And also I am so excited. What's the name of the musical? The musical is called Straightforward. And I'll be honest with you. I was like rolling my eyes a little bit because I was like, okay, I get it. It's like, you know, sexual fluidity and expansiveness. But then I saw it and especially seeing people's reactions, I thought, oh, it's just a straightforward love story. And that's what makes it so special. And um, there was one critic who actually said something. I don't remember his exact line, but it was something to the effect of it's common observation that people fall in love quickly on stage. But what makes this work so well is how slowly it is and how every moment, the first realization of attraction, the first intimacy, the first fight, the first, you know, internalized homophobia, we get to experience all of it with them. Oh, wow. I'm really excited. I'm going to definitely go see that in New York in this summer. And um, thank you so much for being on this podcast today. I really appreciate your time, Mike. Yeah, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Coming Out and Beyond, LGBTQIA plus stories with Anne-Marie Zanzel. New episodes of the Coming Out and Beyond podcast drop every other Friday. You can tune in at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and at annemariezanzel.com. Be sure to hit subscribe when tuning in so you never miss an episode. And for more resources, articles, videos, and a free downloadable guide for coming out later in life, visit annemariezanzel.com.